Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Richard, and I've been a part of this church about three years now. And um, I moved up here about three years ago with my then fiance, who's now my wife, Natalie. And um, we really moved up here because uh, we felt like that's what God was saying, simply, that we should move to Salford. We met at college, we graduated, and then we moved up here. And although we felt very strongly that that's what God was saying, kind of the rest of the journey isn't really so clear. We're still trying to work out what God is up to. Um, often he only kind of shows us the next step, really, and we were sure that the right step was to move to Salford. I've been a Christian for 10 years or so, and I'm still trying to work out what God is up to in my life. I know that he's alive and he's active, but it's not always clear what he's up to. And that's why I kind of, I empathize with the Galatians. We're looking at, uh, at uh, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians today. They were a group of relatively new Christians in Galatia who were trying to work out what God was up to. It was clear that he was up to something. Jesus had died and rose again. But what exactly? And there was this tension because some people had come along and said, well, if you're going to follow God, then you have to follow him according to the Jewish law. You have to follow these rules. But Paul is writing writing to them to say, well, that's not the case. That's not the case. They were worried that if you don't follow those laws, then there's no shape to life. It's a free-for-all. But Paul strongly disagrees. He said, no, you follow the spirit. It's the spirit-shaped life that counts. And that's why we're looking at the fruit of the spirit and the spirit-shaped life today. We're in the middle of a series, and I'm looking at faithfulness. But before we get to faithfulness, I want to mention a couple of things that provide a bit of a context to this, a bit of a framework. Um, The first thing about the fruit of the spirit that I want to mention is that it is fruit. And the second thing I want to mention is that it's from the spirit. Now, I know those are really obvious, and I promise that it will get more interesting than that. But the point of it being fruit is, as Arthur mentioned a few weeks ago, it is indeed God who grows it, but we have to take a part in nurturing it. Otherwise, it won't won't grow properly. So we've actually got a part to play in this fruit of the spirit. But I'll come back to that as we look to apply it. And the second of all, it's from the spirit. And that's really important. Because when you think of the Spirit, you should be thinking of a couple of things. The first thing is the beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 1. You get this picture of the earth being kind of empty and formless. It's kind of dark and a little bit chaotic. And at the beginning of the Bible, we have these verses, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while the Spirit of God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Some translations actually say the Spirit of God was brooding over the waters. You get this idea that the Spirit of God is almost pregnant with creation. So the first thing you need to know about the Spirit is that he is the creative Spirit, and that's really important. And then the second thing about the Spirit is that he anoints and he empowers people to go beyond themselves and to do more than they can do by themselves. In the, in the book of Judges in particular, we, um, there are lots and lots of stories of people who are anointed by God's spirit. Um, and again, in 1 and 2 Samuel, that, that kind of story continues. And there are lots of people that I can mention, but there's some familiar names that I'd just like to highlight. There's Othniel, who's the first judge. So he's the first person that God anoints with his spirit in the book of Judges. And then he goes out and fights an amazing battle and is victorious. You get Gideon 
who's a, a well-known name, this kind of guy who's, who's just incapable. He's not a leader. He's not a warrior. But God's spirit comes on him, and an army is drawn to him, and then he goes out with 300 men and fights a massive, massive army and wins. God's spirit comes on Gideon, and he does amazing things. And then Samson, another famous name. A bit of a tragic story, actually, because Samson's life is full of this anointing spirit, but then him being unfaithful to that call, really. But four times in uh, Samson's story, we hear that God's spirit comes on him, and then he does amazing things, like fights a whole army with the jawbone of a donkey and that kind of thing. You know, it's clear that God's spirit comes on him, and he does these amazing things. And then as you move on to 1 and 2 Samuel, God's spirit anoints Israel's first king, Saul. And then God's spirit anoints Israel's best king, David. Both of those men were anointed by God's spirit. So we get from this that that God's spirit empowers people to do more than they could do by themselves. So when we're thinking of the fruit of the spirit, it's important to hold those two ideas in mind, that God's spirit is the anointing and he is the creating spirit. And those two ideas follow from the Old Testament right into the New Testament. So we've got Jesus in Luke's Gospel in chapter 4. There's something called the Nazarene Manifesto. It's called the Nazarene Manifesto because it happens at Nazareth. And it's a manifesto because it's Jesus' mission statement. This is what his life is all about. It's quite a famous few verses. And he says, I can find them. In Luke chapter 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. So not only does the Holy Spirit anoint the judges and Israel's kings to be better than they could be, the Holy Spirit also anoints Jesus to do these amazing things, you know, to restore sight to the blind, to set the captives free, and um, to help the oppressed. The Spirit is still anointing, isn't he, people to do these things. And the Spirit is still creating. So in Acts chapter 2, we have this amazing story of the birth of the church. You're probably familiar with it. You've got a group of disciples who are left after Jesus has died and has arisen. And they're in this room and they're kind of working out what on earth is God up to? And then there's a sound like the rushing wings and the the tongues like fire appear on their head. And then they go out and they speak in different languages and everybody can understand them. And Peter gives this amazing speech. And then we read that people welcomed the message and were baptised. And that day, about 3,000 people were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. So there we have a picture of the Holy Spirit actually creating the church. He sends the disciples out, and here we have the description of the early church. The Spirit is still creating this community of Christians to be God's light, to be God's blessing in the world. And I think often when I think about the the fruits of the Spirit and the work that the Spirit does, I often think it's kind of between me and God or between me and the world, like the Spirit connects me with God or the Spirit empowers me to be a better person in the world. But we should get from this that one of the main things that the Spirit is concerned with is creating an anointed community of Christians who reflect God's glory. He is, after all, the anointing, creating Spirit. 
So when it comes to looking at Galatians and this idea of the fruit of the Spirit, this provides the context. Paul isn't just talking about when it comes to faithfulness, us being faithful to God or God being faithful to us, although that is important and we will look at that. He's talking about how do we be a faithfully anointed community together? How do we be faithful to one another? Because that's what the Spirit wants. Like I said in the beginning, in Galatia there was this group of people who came along and said, well, if you're going to work out what God is up to, then you have to follow those Jewish laws. That's the way God works. And Paul is writing this letter to say, no, 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 no. It's the spirit-shaped life that counts. That's what brings order to life. That's what honours God. So what is this faithfulness that the Holy Spirit uses to create this community? What is this faithfulness that the Spirit uses to, um, to anoint us with? Well, oh, sorry, there we go. Faithfulness is kind of linked to this idea of reliability and trustworthiness. It's quite simple, really. And in a sense, I almost find it underwhelming. If I was thinking of characteristics of a, of a world-changing community that belonged to a God who died and rose again, I'd probably think of something a little bit more dynamic. If I was going to describe that community, I would think of words like, uh, you know, cutting edge, high energy, um, articulate, intelligent maybe. But actually the things that Paul uses, they're much more low-key, they're more kind of salt-of-the-earth type stuff. Much more humble, actually. And faithfulness, well, I'm not convinced that it's really highly regarded in today's culture. I remember, actually, when I got my first mobile phone contract, and it was 12 months long. And I thought, man, 12 months is a long time. And then all of a sudden, they crept up to 18 months. And I thought, man, this is even longer. And now you can't get one, really, under 24 months. Two years with a mobile phone. Shocking. What's even more shocking, <laughs> it's a long time, isn't it? What's even more shocking is, a couple of years ago, Parliament were discussing whether or not marriage should be on a two-year contract. If you know that, yeah. Because they were trying to kind of combat the high divorce rates and the cost that was involved. There was this discussion going on. Should it be a two-year contract? And then at the end, you get the chance to renew or to just walk away. You love I think we're on about 14, 15 months, so uh, not at all. Shocking idea, isn't it? Where is the faithfulness? It's just not highly regarded today. But actually, the Old Testament, and the Bible as a whole really, is the story of God's faithfulness, despite his people's unfaithfulness. Sure, we get glimpses of people's faithfulness throughout the Bible, but often the unfaithfulness outweighs that. You think of Adam and Eve. God creates these people, and before long, you know, they're eating from the tree that they shouldn't have, and they've been unfaithful to God. What's one of the first things that God does to them? He clothes them, because they realize that they were naked. He doesn't leave them. He gets in there straight away to sort the mess out, and then, of course, promises that Jesus would ultimately come and sort that out. Think of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham hears God and leaves his country to go to a land that he's never been to. He's faithful to God's call. And God promises that, you know, he'll be the father of a mighty nation. And next thing you know, he's having a baby with his servant because God hasn't provided that child yet. 
unfaithfulness in that story of faith. Look at the Exodus. God hears his people's cry, their, their oppressed cry. God saves them. And next thing you know, they're worshipping a golden calf. You're like, what on earth is going on? And then David, who I mentioned earlier, anointed by God's spirit, Israel's best king. Next thing you know, he's having an affair with Bathsheba. The Bible is full of these stories of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. But over all of it, you get this idea that God is faithful. And no matter what, he is going to bring his plan to fruition. He can be relied on. And of course, that faithfulness ultimately is found in Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is both the model of faithfulness for us and our teacher when it comes to faithfulness too. Jesus was everything that Israel failed to be. He was God's best servant. He fulfilled all God's promises. And of course, he was sinless, so he didn't, he didn't step a foot wrong. He followed God faithfully throughout his whole life. Even when it hurt, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when you get this amazing picture of Jesus being faithful to the plan, but he says, if there's another way, God, if there's another way, but there wasn't. So we went for the cross, didn't falter. He kept God's promises of bringing healing and salvation to the world. He kept God's promise of being a light and a blessing. But he also modelled that in the way that he was with his disciples as well. You think of Peter, the classic example. Peter really let Jesus down. He denied him three times. Jesus said he would. Then you get this amazing picture of Jesus almost, you know, reinstating Peter. You know, he calls him back. You look at Judas, the man who actually betrayed Jesus. Jesus never treated him badly, even though he knew what was coming. He still kept him close, loved him. That's an incredible picture of faithfulness, isn't it? So not only did Jesus model the faithfulness between us and God, but he also modeled it with his disciples as well. He's also our teacher. Jesus had some really wise words to say about about being faithful. And I just want to read a parable, actually, from um, Matthew chapter 25. It's quite a well-known parable. It's a parable of the tenants. Sorry, the talents. Now, I'm led to believe that a talent is quite a large sum of money. So it's not a gift, like singing or playing the guitar. It was the equivalent of roughly, I think, about 150 days' wage for a labourer. So, you know, a good few thousand pounds. It was a lot of money. And Jesus tells this parable to do with faithfulness. Let me read it to you. Jesus says, For it will be like a man going on a journey. So this is Matthew 25, verse 14, parable of the talents. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received five talents at once uh, went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But the one who had received one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Interesting. 
Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with him. And he who had received five talents came forward, bringing the talents and saying, Master, you, had, you have delivered me five talents, and here I have made five more. The master said to him, Well done, you good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Man, I hope he says those words to me when I see him. Aren't those amazing words? And he also, sorry, he who also had two talents came forward saying, Master, you had delivered me two talents, and here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I would reap where I did not sow and gathered where I did not scatter seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bank. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has will be given. And he who, sorry, will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the darkness, in that place where there will be gnashing of teeth. That's um, straight down the line, isn't it? There's no messing around there. There's this picture of these three servants. Two have been faithful and one has not. Jesus, or the master, has given these people things according to their own ability. Two of them have been active with it they've gone out and they have done business in Jesus's name and one was afraid so he hid it and he withdrew now when these servants would have been sort of trading in Jesus uh, in the master's name one question would have been asked whose name are you trading in and why are you trading so you couldn't do this trading without people asking who you were serving they couldn't have done it anonymously so it was evident that these servants were trading in the master's name. And that's really important. Jesus is looking for faithful people who are willing to do business in his name, who are willing to engage with people in his name. But unfortunately, fear overtook one of those servants, and he wasn't prepared to do that. He buried his money in the ground. He buried his head in the sand, we would say. He wasn't prepared to say that this master was his master and to do business in his name. It's quite a stark picture of faithfulness. Jesus is clearly looking for people who will be faithful with what he has given. But how can we help this faithfulness to grow? How can we develop this thing of faithfulness that Jesus is clearly looking? Well, from this parable, like I say, it's clear that we've got a choice between being active or being passive. It's quite a big decision. We can either go about our daily lives in the name of Jesus, serving other people and explaining him, explaining to them why we're doing it, explaining who we serve, or we can withdraw. We can be passive, which isn't really an option, actually. 
if we're active and if we go about this Christian life doing it in Jesus' name, then there's going to be a cost and it's going to be painful. Jesus experienced that himself. And if we want to avoid that, well, I guess we could, I guess we could withdraw. We could put ourselves in a situation where nobody has to rely on us. That way, we can't let anybody down and nobody can let us down. The pain-free life. But actually, that's no life at all, is it? Withdrawing isn't really an option. We've got the choice between being active or being passive. There's a couple of interesting lessons about faithfulness uh, in the Bible. Um, some little quirky situations that I think we can learn from. One is uh, a guy called Jephthah, who appears in Judges, that book of the Bible I was talking about earlier, where God's spirit comes on people and anoints them to do amazing things. Well, the book of Judges is also the story of God's people doing things horribly wrong. And there is one guy who exemplifies that really well. Here's a guy who makes a promise, which is good. But his promise is that if he wins in battle, he will sacrifice the first thing that walks out of his house. So he goes to battle and he wins and he comes back and his daughter walks out his front door. Ah, he says, I'm so, so cut up about this. But he remains faithful to his promise and sacrifices his daughter. Now, it doesn't take a genius to work out that that is a bad promise to make. And he should not have fulfilled that. And God wasn't pleased with that. So I think when we make promises, when we try and be faithful to one another, we need to be, we need to be real with what we can actually do and what we're willing to sacrifice. There's no point saying to somebody, yes, I'll support you in this. Yes, I'll be faithful. Yes, I'll keep this promise. When the cost is too high for us to bear. Jesus said, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Think through the promises that we make to one another so that we don't let each other down, so that we can actually keep the promises that we make. And another example is a couple called Ananias and Sapphira, also in Acts. So not long after the Holy Spirit has birthed this new, exciting church, you get this strange story of this couple dropping dead because essentially they've lied about a promise that they made. People were starting to sell everything that they had and to pool all their money so that this new church could share each other's wealth so nobody would go without. This idea that everybody would have everything in common. And this couple say, yes, we'll sell everything. But in reality, they kept a little bit back. They said, this is everything we've got. Take it. And next thing you know, they've dropped dead. God's judgment. Now, I'm pretty sure it would have been okay if they'd have said, we're going to give you the majority, but we just need to keep this. The Bible doesn't say that there's an issue with that. The issue is that they've made a promise, and early on in the life of this church, promises seem to really count. Now, that's quite, quite a stark judgment, and I don't think that if we leave here and break a promise that we're in danger of dropping dead, so I don't want you to be afraid. I think it's just a way of showing God takes this stuff really seriously. And particularly at the start of the church, this was really important, that this community remained faithful to the promises that they made to one another. It's a really big deal. And we need to kind of heed that warning in a sense. 
We need to make sure that the promises that we make to one another are realistic. We need to make sure that we carry them through. And we need to make sure that we're honest about them. As Arthur was preaching uh, a few weeks ago, um, this video clip came into mind. I actually mentioned it when we were kind of sharing our thoughts afterwards. And um, I'm just going to show it in a moment. Um, And it's just a really helpful picture, I think, of how we can learn to grow in this faithfulness and what we can expect when we pray for it. In a moment after the clip, we're just going to have a few moments where we're going to pray. And we're going to pray that God would increase this fruit of faithfulness in in us. Because we want to be a faithful community, don't we? We want to be faithful with one another. We want to be faithful with God and faithful with what he's given us. Let me just explain about it. It's a clip from a film called Evan Almighty. It's a brilliant film. And Evan is like a modern-day Moses. God has called him to build this ark. Um, And I won't spoil the story. Uh, You can watch it um, and kind of see where it ends up. But his wife is really struggling because his wife hasn't heard God's call. And Evan's doing this crazy stuff. I mean, he's building an ark in the 21st century. And she's just trying to make sense of it. And this is a scene where God, or Morgan Freeman as we know him, is having a conversation with with the wife in a diner. And she's sort of questioning what's happening. And this is what God has to say in this situation. Excuse me, can I get a refill please? Coming right up. Excuse me, are you all right? Yeah. No, it's a long story. But I like stories. I'm considered a bit of a storyteller myself. My husband? Have you heard of New York's Noah? <laughs> the guy who's building the ark. That's him. I love that story. Noah and the ark. You know, a lot of people miss the point of that story. They think it's about God's wrath and anger. They love it when God gets angry. What is the story about then, the ark? Well, I think it's a love story about believing in each other. You know, the animals showed up in pairs. They stood by each other, side by side, just like Noah and his family. Everybody entered the ark side by side. But my husband says God told him to do it. What do you do with that? Sounds like an opportunity. Let me ask you something. If someone prays with patience, you think God gives them patience? Or does it give them the opportunity to be patient? If they prayed for courage, does God give them courage? Or does it give them opportunities to be courageous? If someone prayed for the family to be closer, do you think God zaps them with warm, fuzzy feelings? Or does it give them opportunities to love each other? Well, I gotta run. A lot of people to serve. Enjoy. I don't know if you caught the name on his name tag. It was a little bit fuzzy, but it said Almighty. <laughs> Almighty as we know it. That clip speaks to me really pow- powerfully, actually, because I think it's important that we pray for this fruit to grow in us. But like Morgan Freeman says, I don't think God is going to give us these warm, fuzzy feelings of you know, love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, all of these things. I think God is actually going to provide situations 
where we can be faithful to one another. That's the way that we exercise and practice this faithfulness. And then, of course, we're going to be faced with the dilemma. Which servant in that parable are we going to be like? Are we going to be like the two faithful ones who, you know, interacted in Jesus' name? Or are we going to be like the one who just buries his head in the sand and, and withdraws and remains passive? We've always got that choice, haven't we, between activeness and passiveness. So, I'd like us to just take a moment, actually. Take a moment and just think. Think of the situations where you have been faithful and remind yourself how God has been growing that fruit in your life. Because despite all the mistakes that we might have made, I can guarantee that we've all been faithful as well. Take a moment and remind yourself of the things that God has done in your life the way that he's been faithful. You might have to think especially hard this morning if you're going through some difficult times, but, but it's worth doing. I think that reminding ourselves of how God has been faithful to us helps us to be faithful with one another. I wonder if you could turn to the person next to you and just simply pray a blessing that God would increase this fruit of faithfulness in their lives and that he would be able to anoint them with the spirit to act faithfully in those situations. Now if you've not had anybody pray for you before, it's okay. Just, just ask the person if they're comfortable. If it's appropriate, you can rest a hand on the shoulder as you're praying. If it's not, it's not, that's okay. Uh, but just ask the person next to you, is it okay if I pray for you? And then just pray this blessing that God would increase faithfulness, provide situations to be faithful and anoint them with his spirit so that they can be faithful in those situations. Turn to the person next to you and we'll just pray for a couple of minutes. If you're praying, then um, don't let me stop you. Please continue. Um, we're going to move into um, communion now. Um, and communion is really important. We do it every week here. Uh, and uh, actually, this is the first church I've been to where we do it every week here. In the other churches I've been to in the past, it was kind of a you know, once a month type of thing. But it's really important, communion, because it reminds us of a few things. It reminds us that the slate can always be wiped clean. And that slate can be wiped clean between us and God and with each other. Communion brings it all back to the foot of the cross, doesn't it? Where everything is made new. So if things haven't gone according to plan in your life, then you can come back to God now and you can start again. If you have let him down in some ways, this is a reminder that you're forgiven. And equally, if you've let other people down, this is a reminder that everything's been forgiven. <coughs> Communion is, is the type of place 
where you come to and you realise that you're all in it together. And the way that we do it here is we'll have some people at the front with the bread and with the juice and we'll make a queue and we'll come down and we'll walk with each other side by side down as we take the bread and the, and, uh, and the, the fruit juice. We do that because we're in this together. The Holy Spirit is shaping this community with this faithfulness and these other fruits of the Spirit. I wonder if the band could come up, if that's okay, and those who are serving communion. Would you, um, would you mind coming to the front and move this out of the way? Could you put the next slide up, please? Should be the last slide in there. This is just a summary of what I've mentioned this morning. The Holy Spirit creates and anoints a Christian community which includes us to be God's light and blessing in the world. He uses faithfulness, which is trust and reliability to do this, so let's keep our promises with one another. And forgiveness with God and with other people helps to keep faithfulness fresh. Often it's those promises that people have broken that prevent us from being faithful. But communion is a place where all of that can be dealt with. So as the band plays, come and receive and remind yourself that you're part of a spirit-filled community that's being shaped and anointed.